Well, let's pray before we start studying God's Word. Um, before we do, let me let you guys in behind the scenes a little bit about preparing a sermon. I don't know how many in here have prepared a sermon. It's a long process. Um, for like this, this series, for instance, really started in the summer. I started trying to map through the book of Joshua and try to figure out what's this book really about at large and start zeroing in on, in, on individual sections that I might focus on in sermons. And then it comes to the week prior to the sermon, and you work through it as much, as many times as you can. You cannot bend the text to your message. You have to bend yourself to the text. And it seems like the bending, you think it's going to stop. And then inevitably, as I try to read over it as many times as I can, I do one last time on Sunday morning. And I should probably stop doing one last read over on Sunday morning, because inevitably... There's more bending that I need to do on Sunday morning. I'm always just hoping it snaps into a place before I open my mouth up here and start talking. Um, that's part of why I pray before I begin every sermon. It's for y'all's help to understand it and apply it to your lives and submit to it. And it's for my help. Just Lord willing, I pray that this message has snapped into place and it is the message from the Word. Uh, so I would appreciate your prayers too. When I lead you in prayer, I hope you don't think it's just me praying while you guys have your eyes closed. Please pray with me. We really need God's help to understand His Word. And we especially need His help to submit to it, to bend to it. Uh, so let's bow together. Let's, let's really pray for His help this morning. Bow with me if you would. Father, I do pray that you would enable me to speak clearly what you would communicate to us through your Word this morning. And I pray that you would help us all to understand it, to submit to it. And Lord, in the process, may your name be greatly glorified. Because your word is truth. And it cuts right into our souls. It gets straight to the point. Lord, may by your Holy Spirit and your grace, may its ministry be done this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We will be picking up in Joshua chapter 7 this morning, trucking right along. Before we do, you guys probably can't see this. This is my wedding ring. This is the only piece of jewelry that I own. I'm not a big jewelry guy. Um, when I was little, I would go to my grandmother's house and I would like, put on all of her necklaces, because Mr. T was big back then. It was a Mr. T thing. That's why I put on my <laughs> She delights in telling all my friends and, and my wife about that. But now it's down to this little well, watch if you consider that jewelry. Now, some of you know I lost my wedding ring over the summer about two years, two summers ago. I finally got a new one back. So I'm very careful with it. And it was very upsetting when I lost it. And for two reasons. There was one really big reason that it was very upsetting. And there was one little reason why it was upsetting. The big one, obviously, is that it's the primary symbol of my marriage. It was the ring that Meredith put on my finger when we said our vows and we got married. That's the big reason. But I want to talk about the little reason, which is that we paid good money for it. <laughs> and it's at the bottom of the ocean somewhere off of Holden Beach. If anyone finds it, I expect you to return it to me. Now, why is it worth so, I mean, it's not worth that much, but why is it worth more than other bits of metal? Well, it's, it's gold, white, 
gold um, is what I've picked out. But what makes gold worth anything more than other bits of metal? It goes through a process. It goes through a refining process. I do not pretend that I know a lot about the refining process for gold. I researched a little bit. It looks like they take bits of metal that have impurities and other types of metal and stuff in there. And they apply some sort of chemical trickery to it. And then they put it under extreme heat. And the extreme heat makes all the impurities rise to the top of this molten liquid metal. And then they're able to skim it off. And it's the fire that brings about the refining. It's through the fire that it's made valuable. It's through the fire that the impurities are able to become visible and be skimmed away. That's the process of making this worth something. As far as cash value. Obviously it's worth more than that sentimentally. And so it is with our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. But I want you to keep that sort of image in your mind as we proceed into this chapter. There's a very real fire that we encounter in our lives as Christians. Peter wrote and he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing or refining, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Peter says, don't be surprised when you encounter fire, like this is an odd thing. You should expect this. God spoke to the prophet Zechariah in chapter 13 of his book and says, I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined. And test them as gold is tested. And then they will call on my name. And I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. But before they have that relationship, there's a refining that has to take place. And finally, Paul says in Romans, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who was given to us. But the hope does not come. Without going through. The tribulations. That bring perseverance. That bring true character. So it's the fire that causes our impurities. To rise to the top. It's the fire that enables them to be skimmed off. Now. As we pick up in chapter 7. I want you to remember last week. Last week was a particularly gruesome. Sunday. And I don't really apologize for that. I mean, I'm just preaching God's word and taking up with him. <laughs> but if you remember, it was the fall of Jericho. And they were utterly destroyed. And everything within the city was banned. Israel was not to take anything out of the city. Okay? So the walls had just crumbled. Dust is still in the air. That's where we pick up in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some things under the ban. Therefore, 
the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Literally, this could be translated, his anger was kindled. His anger was burning. It was kindled like you kindle a fire. It was burning against Israel. Our study of Joshua has turned into a study of God's character as displayed in history. And here we see an aspect of his character, again, like last week, that we don't talk about a whole lot. But here God is angry. His anger is burning. Now we think it's sinful to be angry. In Ephesians, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. That's not our passage for this morning, but it indicates that there is a type of anger that is not sinful. But how can we understand this? I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen anger that's not sinful in the people around me. How can we understand God being angry here? Well, let's take a look at what causes it. What kindled it? The sons of Israel took things under the ban. They acted unfaithfully. They disobeyed. And they brought the things under the ban into their camp. That's what kindled this anger. That's what ignited it. I want you to imagine, as we try to understand this aspect of God's character, imagine a fireplace. Some of you have fireplaces in your homes. Uh, We have one in the parsonage. I haven't cranked it up yet. Imagine a fireplace. Now, to have a fire in your fireplace, you need wood, right? Now, picture God as a fireplace. And there are, for the sake of our conversation this morning, two logs in there. Stick with me. These logs are his passions. Passion number one, he has a passion for his glory. We know through the counsel of Scripture that God is passionate about his glory. He is the glorious one. He is the one who is deserving of worship. And for him to be passionate about any other glory would be idol worship. Because he is the worshipful one. So he's passionate about his glory. That's log number one in the fireplace. Log number two, he is passionate about the holiness of his people. All through what we've been studying, God is trying to bring about a people, a holy people, pure from sin, set apart for himself. Okay, so you're picturing God as a fireplace with these two big logs in there. His passion for his glory, his passion for his holiness. Now these logs are ignited into a burning flame when the sons of Israel disobey and take things from the band. His anger is kindled against them because of their action. His passion for His glory and their holiness is now aflame. And I'm not sure if this illustration makes sense to you. It makes sense in my mind because this is where there's a key difference between God's anger and often our anger. What causes God's passions to ignite into anger? His glory being trampled. 
His people disobeying him. His people thinking banned things from the city are more precious than what God has told me to do. Now what causes our passions to ignite in anger? What causes your passions to ignite in anger? And mine. What is it that makes us so angry when we get cut off in traffic? Or the copier just will not cooperate. I only know how to do one function on that copier. (laughs) And it can do other things, I know, but I cannot figure it out. What makes us so angry when our kids disobey? What makes us so angry when people frustrate us? Whatever it is that causes us to get angry, what's really causing that? What's igniting our passions into anger? For God is when His purposes are set aside, when His people disobey, when His glory is trampled. And for us, when these things happen, I would argue that we get angry because our purposes are thwarted. Because our rights are violated. Because our glory is trampled. Think of what goes on in your mind when you get angry. What logs of passion have burst into flames in your heart? What are you truly passionate about in that moment? Is it God's glory or is it yours? This passage really has sort of laid me bare this week. Uh, I'm not not a terribly angry person typically. There are some things that get me angry. And this has really been a mirror into my heart this week. Jesus taught us to pray to our Father, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now search your hearts and tell me if this is not true. When you get angry, are you typically not saying in frustration in your heart, My will is not getting done on earth or in heaven. Forget about God's will. My will is not getting done. When we're angry, we're just self-worshippers. Our passion for our own self, our own glory is ignited into burning anger. I go down that road so we can understand that God's anger is not sinful like ours is. God's anger burns with correct passions. Sinless anger occurs only when a passion for God's glory is ignited by observing some sort of sin. And I rarely see that among people. Uh, The Bible says be slow to anger. I've rarely been around someone who, whose heart is so Godwardly focused that they can be angry and not sin. I want to read on and I want to see what his anger, this fire, accomplishes. In verse 2. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Haven. I looked up Ai to make sure I pronounced that correctly. East of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up. Only about two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, and they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far 
as Shivarim and struck them down on the descent. So the hearts of the people melted and became as water. The heart of the people melted and became as water. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? You, you remember some of our first sermons in this series? That's how the people of the land felt. Their hearts had melted. Their courage had just liquefied. In God's anger, we see here, He removed His favor from His people. They were defeated. Now let's read on and see Joshua's reaction here in verse 6. Then, after this defeat, Joshua tore his clothes and fell on the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. Both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord, God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? Since Israel has turned their back before their enemies. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off, cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? Joshua just falls apart. And he's talking like the, Israel's always, the Israelites always talk. Why did you even bring us into this land? Why can't we just live on the other side of the Jordan? Now, this was not good for Joshua to respond this way. Maybe this is why Joshua wasn't in the Hall of Faith, like we talked about a few weeks ago, and Rahab was. I don't know. But I can understand where he's coming from. Remember in chapter 1, God told Joshua, every step you take, that's your land. You will have victory everywhere you go. The land is yours. So Joshua was not expecting defeat here. Now, this was pretty crushing. This threw everything into doubt. He did not see this coming. So let's see what God says to him in verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, Rise up. Literally, that's just up. Get up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. They have even taken some of the things under the ban and have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Can you see what's happening here? As a result of God's burning anger, the sin is starting to bubble up to the top. The sin is starting to become visible. Joshua didn't even know that anyone had taken banned things. Until this heat, this, the defeat is basically the heat from God's anger. And the sin is rising to the top. He lays it out in verse 11. They sinned, they transgressed or broke the covenant, they took banned things, they stole, they deceived to cover it all up. Now let's look at this from a, a slightly different angle. The Bible says God is love. 
God is love. So everything he does is love toward us. So even his anger is an outgrowth of his love. Hebrews teaches that if God does not discipline you, then you're not a legitimate son or daughter of God. The book of Hebrews, the writer says, if if God does not discipline you, and discipline is painful, then you're not a legitimate son or daughter of God. Now, what kind of dad would I be if I never disciplined my son? He laughs. He might think I was great, but his life would just, just go off into oblivion. That would not be loving. I get what I'm getting at. I don't want you to think of God's anger like we think of man's anger. Man's anger is rarely, if ever, motivated by love. Whereas God's is, always. Because He is love. In fact, even the terminology anger, since it has such connotations for us, makes it difficult for us to understand what it really is when God is angry. Think of it more in terms of the fire, the refining fire. It's a refining fire that purifies the ones he loves. And it's through the fire of his anger that we become free from sin, that we even know we have sin, that we have to skim off, that we become valuable, worthy, holy, beautiful. God allowed here Israel to be defeated in order to purge their sin from them. We thought that his main goal was to bring the people into the land, but here we see he stops, sets that goal aside to make sure he purifies his people. Because he doesn't just want people, he wants holy people. And sometimes he has to send his people through a fire to bring it about. Now before we go on, let's not forget what Jesus did on the cross. You know, we talked last week about a guy with blood on his hands. We're talking now about about how it's his anger that purges sin. I've asked myself often, why did it have to be such a terrible death for Christ? He took all this on himself for us. That's why it's through Christ now that we become valuable, worthy, beautiful, new creation. We have to study this in the shadow of the cross. Or else we lose hope. But sometimes he still has to use defeat and failure and misfortune and calamity and disaster and setbacks to refine his people. Now, not all defeats and failures are because there's some specific sin. I mean, look at Job. Job's life was hard, and it was not because of any specific sin in his life. But God uses these things to refine all of us. Romans 8.28 says that he uses, it works all things for the good of his people. And that's what it means. Sometimes you're in the fire. It does not feel good. But he's working that for our good. He's trying to refine you and me. 
Now, we all have a lot of refining to do, especially myself. I don't know your hearts like I know my own, but I know that I have a lot of refining to be done. But I wanted to give you some examples to maybe make this a little more tangible. Uh, And my life is the most accessible to me, so that's where it's going to come from. There was a time in my life that I would describe as the worst time of my life to date. Uh, Definitely the worst time in my life. It was a time of excruciating pain, not physical. It was a time of sleepless nights. It was a time where every aspect compartment of my life was affected by the misery that I was going through. Worst time of my life. But I look back now and I see the heart change that God brought about in me through that time. And I see the freedom from sin that he brought about in me through that time. And I see the restored relationships around me that he brought about through that. And though I hope to never live through anything like that again, I would not trade it for anything. Or another time that I would describe as the loneliest time of my life. Uh, This would be after high school. For some reason, for two years, I was pretty much isolated from from everybody. I, I was at community college. I think I've told you guys about this before. No friends. Just wasn't able to meet any friends. I'm a pretty friendly guy. You'd think that I could meet one friend at Central Piedmont. No friends. You know, my girlfriend and I broke up a couple months after high school, as normally happens. All my friends moved off to four-year schools. It was the loneliest time of my life, by far. But I look back now. And I see how he used that to strengthen my relationship with him. In fact, it was during that time that he started calling me into ministry. If it wasn't for that time, I would most likely not be standing here. I wouldn't be in ministry probably. Or probably, how about the most stressful time of my life? A time when you, you feel like you're just going to crumble under it. But I see how God worked to strengthen my faith through that time. How he destroyed idols in my heart through that time. Now, I mean, obviously, many here know me quite well. You know that this is just the beginning for me. I have a lot of refining to do. But I look back, and honestly, those are some of the most precious times for me when I question my faith. I remember, well, no, he disciplined me. I am his son. He's disciplined me like a son. I have one more word for you from this passage. In verse 13, what do we do when we're in this heat, when we're in this fire? Verse 13, rise up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel, and you cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed things, the banned things from your midst. Here's how to react when you're under the fire. I know my time's running short. This is why Scott uses words like promptly. (laughs) Consecrate yourselves. That word is not something we use in everyday language. It means set yourselves apart. In context, it always means turn yourself to God. Turn your mind to God, your eyes to God, your ears to God, your hearts to God. Turn your lives to God. When you're going through these times, that has to be the first thing. Turn yourself to God. 
Because otherwise, the first thing you're going to do is try to remove yourself from the discomfort of your situation. And that's not always good. If my ring was removed from the refining fire that I assume it went through, if I understand the process correctly, which I probably don't, but you know what I mean, if it was removed too early, it wouldn't be complete. It wouldn't be valuable. And I know in my life the times that I have sought the quick way out, sought the easy way out, that I have suffered for it. I would probably be a much holier man today if it weren't for all the examples I can think of in my life. When I jumped out of the fire as quick as possible. But that's how we are, isn't it? I think everyone here would say, yeah, I want to be holy. But I don't want the fire. We want gain with no pain. We want muscle with no exercise. We want wealth without work. We want sex without marriage. We want character without trial. We want success without discipline. We want life without death. We want salvation without crucifixion. We want holiness without fire. And we cannot have it. Yes, our holiness is secured in Christ. In God's eyes, He sees Christ when He looks at Matt Broadway and the other Christians in this room. But our practical holiness works itself out through sanctification, through the fires that God brings about to bring about holiness, to skim the sin out of our hearts. He says, Be holy, for I am holy. And the rest of the chapter tells how they found the sin in Israel, how they purged it out. Chapter 8 goes on to tell how after that, God's favor returned. They defeated Ai. I've been wrestling with this text, wondering what is the primary point of it? What should I try to convey? And I think God's exhortation to us this morning is consecrate yourselves. Turn yourselves to God. Turn to His Word. You know, the Bible says God's Word is what is profitable for teaching, for reproof, which means pointing out what's wrong with you, pointing out your sin, for correction, taking that away and showing you how to live, and then training you in how to go from there. I think He's exhorting us not to jump out of the flames too eagerly, because He may be trying to refine us. For some of us who might be tempted to try to identify sin in other people's lives because we see them going through a hard time, I think he would remind us that, A, it's not necessarily because of some specific sin that people go through hard times. Again, think of Job. And B, you probably should be envious because the people who go through the hardest times, the Christians who go through the hardest times, are the ones that come out and are the ones that you look to for wisdom and you look to as an example. I mean, think about the strongest Christians in your lives, the most inspiring people in your life. They're usually not the ones that had an easy street their whole life, is it? They're the people who have been refined through the fires. We need to consecrate ourselves. As Alicia is about to lead us in our closing song, We're going to sing about how no one has ever cared for us like Jesus. And it sings about how He removes our sin. And praise God that He does. But we have to accept the fact that 
we grow into that sinlessness through difficulty. I was asked right before I came in here, I have to share this with you guys before I step down, is Joshua going to be happier this Sunday than he was last Sunday? I said, you know, I don't know. You know, this is the passage. I have to bend to it. And I'm hoping that this gives us hope. Man, I mean, this has laid me bare on some issues. I mean, there, there's one particular component of my life. I don't know why I'm tempted to get probably too honest with you now. But where I get angry way too quickly. And this is showing me that my anger is not like God's. There's not love in it. I want, in this situation, for my will to be done. And so I have to consecrate myself. Let's all use this last song as an opportunity to consecrate ourselves. This altar is here if you need to come pray. You can pray where you stand. Man, I, I pray for our church that he will refine us as individuals and as a congregation. Um, and I brace myself knowing that that might not be a totally comfortable process. Man, the holiness that he will spring about in us. I long to see it.